Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists, and food makers, farmers, authors, and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good Sunday to you, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. The culinary landscape is ever evolving. And if you tune in every Sunday, you'll hear from chefs and pastry aficionados, restaurateurs, molecular gastronomers, food bloggers, cookbook authors, and more on this show. We're dishing on fabulous food, wine and spirits, travel, health, and living the best life. So I hope that you won't miss a Sunday of delicious conversation with me. If you are a food enthusiast, well, then you are definitely in the right place. The fresh strawberries have been perfuming the farmer's markets. Corn and tomatoes are sweet. And summer is no doubt here. And I have lots of summer inspiration for everything delicious at chefjamie.com. And I hope you'll check it out. And always on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. And if you missed a show or you're looking to master a topic, you can find my podcasts on iTunes under Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. So I'll kick off this Sunday's show um, with a crazy sort of thought. I'm not sure why during the summer months, albeit the strawberries are sweet and the corn and the tomatoes are scrumptious, but I always think of avocados when it comes to beating the heat. Now, I know that Cinco de Mayo is usually the official kickoff for guacamole, but I'm very avocado addicted, I would say. And so I've been thinking about guacamole in lots of different forms. Now, all you need is a good ripe avocado, a squeeze of lime, and a dash of salt to make guacamole in its most basic form. But you know me, I like to push the envelope when it comes to food. And so I thought we should expound on everyone's favorite dip today, especially considering that a mashed avocado is essentially a blank canvas for all sorts of additions. And hopefully you're planning a summer shindig that includes guac and chips or a Mexican fiesta before the summer is out. So you should know that guacamole is originally from Mexico and the name is derived from two Aztec words, and please forgive the pronunciation, ahuacatl and moli. So avocado and sauce come together to make guacamole. And yes, all you need is good ripe avocados. But after that, everything is a bonus. I like a little bit of lime or lemon juice, that splash of acidity to balance the richness of the avocado. And then I love a little bit of chopped cilantro and some finely minced jalapeno and maybe a little uh, red onion, if you please. And then tomato diced, which I think is essential for texture. But the trick to perfect guacamole is good ripe avocados. And we've all used the pressure test, right? Where you test for ripeness by gently pressing the outside of an avocado. And if it's not yet ripe, then, you know, it doesn't have any softness to it. And you know it won't taste good. And if it gives a little, then you're hopeful that it's a good avocado. Uh, But there's a great trick to test an avocado that I recently learned and I wanted to pass along because it's so disappointing when you cut into an avocado that you've been nurturing to perfect ripeness only to find that brown slimy mess inside. Well, worry no more. This is the simple foolproof way 
to tell whether you will discover a creamy, luscious green interior or a brown, slimy mess the next time you cut open an avocado. And by the way, this tip and trick can be done in the supermarket, so you are a step ahead of other foodies. All you do is you peel back that little stem at the top of the avocado, and if it comes away easily and you find it green underneath the stem, then you've got a great avocado that's ripe and ready to eat. Now, if you pull back the stem and you find brown underneath, on the other hand, the avocado is overripe and you will likely find brown spots inside the fruit, which by the way, avocado is a fruit. And if the stem doesn't come off at all, well, then the fruit is not ripe and you should not buy that avocado. Now, you'll have the perfect avocado chosen, right? And then you'll need some new inspiration when it comes to the variations on guacamole. So I have some surprising ingredients and flavors to share with you. So grab some tortilla chips and let's get dunking, shall we? You can always make your guacamole super smooth, which by the way, this version is really beautifully ideal for making an avocado spread for sandwiches or to serve alongside, let's say, grilled fish. And all you do is you throw the avocados pitted into the food processor with a little bit of acid, lime or lemon juice, salt, cilantro, uh, your flavors of choice, and then some sour cream. For this beautiful, smooth texture, you will have a ultimately creamy guacamole. Now, I happen to like my guacamole charred, and so I grill my avocados. You fire up your backyard barbecue or you put a grill pan over high heat. You cut the avocados in half and take out the pits. You brush with olive oil, season salt and pepper, and you throw them cut side down on the grill. And two to three minutes later, you have gorgeous grill marks and you have this luscious, smoky flavor that permeates the avocado. Now, you could grill the jalapenos alongside or even the red onion if you so chose, but then you just proceed with guacamole the way you know best and you have the ultimate charred guacamole. Now, you could, of course, make it spicy. You could add the jalapenos or take it a step further and go with serranos or even uh, ghost chilies. But what about a little bit of Asian influence? Well, if you haven't bought a jar of yuzu koshu before, I bet you've tasted it at your favorite sushi bar on top of a piece of beautiful sashimi. Yuzu koshu is a ground paste made of yuzu, the Japanese citrus, and lots of chili pepper. And it has this bright, beautiful, spicy flavor to it. And it is absolutely luscious in guacamole. So try it next time you want to mix things up and add that chili acid mixture for fabulous flavor. And then last but not least, you could always make your guacamole fruity by adding, seeing that it is the peak of the summer fruit season, some diced mango, even some chopped peaches, or even diced pineapple. You'd be amazed how a little bit of fresh basil or mint will pair extraordinarily with the fruit and the avocado. So now you are a guacamole expert. And of course, I would love to know how your guacamole turns out. You can always email me, jamie at chefjamie.com. And if you've been listening in the past few weeks, well, then you know we have a new feature where it's my goal to bring you current on food topics. So here are the three things that foodies need to know this week. 
the New York Fast Food Wage Board voted this past Wednesday to bring the minimum wage over the next few years in New York fast food restaurants up to $15 an hour. And it applies, by the way, to restaurants with more than 30 units. It is a slow, steady increase, in fact, that starts this coming January 2016, where the current minimum wage at $8.75 is being increased to $9. But uh, New York fast food employees are hopeful that they will get to that $15 mark. You should also know that the number of U.S. food products that were recalled in 2014 was just calculated. And fascinating to me, the recalls have nearly doubled since the year prior. Now, the process of recalling food in this country can cost the food companies anywhere from $10 million to $100 million. And I thought it was so interesting because the report stated that the increasing number of recalls can be explained by a combination of regulatory changes and the advent of an increasingly globalized food supply chain. So more problems to be created, more problems to be caught. And then last but not least, this is definitely food news and one that I am most excited about because the best ice cream sandwiches across the country were rated and one of the top 10 as they were rated one to 10 and what will be number one in my book when I get myself traffic and all to my home city, Los Angeles, at a restaurant called Taco, uh, Taco Madera, there is a Dolce de Leche ice cream sandwich where the ice cream is sandwiched between two pinwheels of churro. And just so you know, I'm in whatever it takes to get there. And so that is this week's food news. Stay tuned because there's lots more gastronomic conversation coming up. The chef and restaurateur and judge that you love on Food Network's Chopped, Mark Murphy, is stopping by, and he's teaching us to season with authority. Also, Anastasia Marks de Salcedo is sharing her extensive research on how the military shapes the way you eat. Her Combat Ready Kitchen book was really interesting. A great read. And our resident fitness expert, Lisa Lin, will help you lose weight while on vacation. I know. It sounds unbelievable, but it's true. You'll have to stay tuned until the end of the hour as we do have stimulating conversation. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. I'll be right back. It's delicious, it's divine, it's food and wine. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. We do have the greatest culinary thinkers on this show. And with 30 years of professional cooking and four New York restaurants under his belt, the star chef Mark Murphy has finally come out with his debut cookbook. 
and food lovers are excited. It is available now, entitled Season with Authority, Confident Home Cooking, and it focuses on the art of seasoning with salt and spices and herbs and so much more, and features over 130 recipes for Mark Murphy's favorite dishes, but all of them comfort foods that you know and love and improved upon. Like, I can't wait to make deviled eggs with fried oysters. And everybody is talking about his gooey, delicious Nutella and peanut butter panini. You know Mark and love him, of course, as a judge on the Food Network's Chops since its inception, in fact, in 2009. And he is here to dish on how to season what he's cooking this summer and why he's so passionate about kids. And I'm really excited to have you on the show for the first time, Mark. So thank you and welcome. Well, thank you for having me. It's very exciting. (laughs) Of course. Thank you. Okay, let's talk about seasoning. And congratulations on the book because I know this is a labor of love. And yes, these are all your signature dishes. But when it comes to seasoning with authority, uh, there's more than just... It's not, I mean, I I often, you know, people ask me, why did I name the book that? And I just find that a lot of the times you go and you eat places, and especially at home cooks, they just don't season enough. They get too scared. People are so scared that salt's bad for you or whatever, or it's over-peppered. But, you know, it's really, a lot of the times, especially when you're cooking proteins, if you don't put enough salt and pepper on it before you cook it, you can't add it afterwards. It really sear, it, it sears on the meat or the fish, and it really gives it a great flavor. Hmm. And I think that that's um, my, my favorite example of seasoning is, uh, as you mentioned, children, was at a friend's house, and they were making broccoli for the kids. And she put the steamed broccoli out on the plates, and I looked at her, and I said, what's the matter? Why, why aren't you putting any seasoning on that? She goes, oh, well, the kids are just having steamed broccoli. And it's like, well... No wonder your kids don't like the steamed broccoli. How about a little olive oil? How about a little salt and pepper on there? And then I took it all off their plates, and then the kids were like, oh, my God, this is the best broccoli ever. I'm like, well, you know, they're not in the hospital. They don't have to eat a low-sodium <laughs> diet. They're just kids that want to eat food. That's to make them interested in it. And okay. I find that a lot of the times people just don't, you know, they don't push the seasoning hard enough. That's true. I agree. But how do you guarantee the proper ratio of flavors? Is it a, a scientific method? Is it uh, just test and retest, tried and true? I, what advice can you give us? Because, you know, salt and pepper, yes, but there are more flavorful se- seasonings that you keep in your arsenal, this favorite pantry of yours that add flavor. Absolutely. I mean, it, first of all, I think you know, seasoning and, and, well, in cooking in general, is just something you just have to do. You yes. have to keep doing it. There's, I agree. It, it, it comes from the feeling. You, you sort of, people say, how do you know when that's ready? It's like, well, I know it's ready when it's ready. I mean, you sort of, you can, it, it talks to you. The food talks to you, you know. You can look at it, you poke it, you smell it. There's all sorts of ways to tell. Um, and, yes, I think that, uh, you know, a, a big part of, uh, of seasoning is acidity. I think that, uh, of, you know, sherry vinegar or a squeeze of lemon juice can just change so many things, especially, especially when you're making sauces. I don't know if you remember when you make those old French school sauces, those yes. reductions, you know, the bones that were roasted mm-hmm. and you reduce and reduce. And at the end, if you just hit a, you know, you taste and you taste and you go, what is it? You know, there's the, you know maybe you have butter in there, but one squeeze of lemon or a yes. little bit of sherry vinegar just oh, brightens it true? up and opens up the, it, it just opens it up. It's gorgeous. And, and I think that's something and um, that, that people have to, have to, you, and you really personally, you just have to play with it. You have to get used to it. You have to, you know, you have to just get to know it, really. I, I have to agree with you. Chef Charlie Palmer taught me that. I was in his kitchen, and he was adding a literal, I mean, literally a drop of fresh lemon juice from a half a squeezed lemon that were set out on um, bread and butter plates right on the line before the food was going out. And there was a drop of lemon juice going on everything. And I remember <laughs> thinking to myself, 
Well, that seems repetitive, right? Yeah. I mean, does he want to taste it first? But the truth is that that beautiful acidity brightens or freshens the flavor and you might not know it's even there, but there's more than just salt and pepper. Like, I love that you love anchovies. I would never make a white bean puree without anchovies. I mean, white bean puree to me is a beautiful thing, but if you don't put a little bit of, and you know, 99% of the time people don't know there's anchovy in it. They don't taste it, but it's there. It gives it a little bit of backbone. It's yes. like it's like terroir in a good Bordeaux. Oh, you know? for it sure. Gives, a, gives it a little bit of, uh, you know, it makes it stand up, so to speak. It's what fish sauce is to every great Asian dish. And exactly. with yes. your background and having grown up in Italy, I could imagine anchovies were everywhere. I will let you know that I will never make a deviled egg again without a fried oyster coming up soon. <laughs> uh, no, those are delicious. Absolutely. They're a lot of fun. And you add um, pickled jalapenos and fried shrimp or fried oysters at Ditch Plains, one of your four restaurants. And I can imagine you've got the pickle, so you've got the vinegar, because we know that you like acid. And then you've got the fried, creamy, rich uh, shellfish. And then you've got this yummy, overwhelmingly, you know, great mouthfeel deviled egg all together in one bite. It it is actually a a perfect bite. And I I do have to say that I do lean more towards the oyster than I do the shrimp because I think Mm. the oyster is, well, you know, when you fry an oyster, that, that, delicious center that happens when oh, it ends yes. warm. Oh, it's just fantastic. Mm. So definitely something that it is, it is, a, it is a pretty well-balanced dish. And I think that you also, you know, talking about balance, I think that there's a lot of the times for me, it's a lot about ratio. Even when you're mm. serving a dish, um, you know, if I eat like just take steak, mashed potatoes and spinach, right? If I have, I, I want that perfect bite every time I'm eating that whole dish. And if I'm left at the end with a bunch of potatoes, I'm like, ah, it wasn't, it wasn't balanced correctly. Like, there's too many potatoes left. Now I need more steak and more spinach, you know? Give us some insight, if you would, before I let you go. Um, what the chopped set is like, or, or how it's changed even over the last six years that you have been an authority at the judging table. Well, it it's literally has not changed at all i think the recipe that they came up with for the show chopped has just been it was it was great from pretty the beginning. genius people loved yeah. it it has not changed it's still a it's a closed set we have no audience mm-hmm. unfortunately people are always asking if they can come and see it but it would be uh, we can't do that it's not not big enough for that um it's uh one of the greatest things for me is actually the camaraderie we have between the uh, the judges it's sort of like a fraternity now there's nine of us and we all sort of rotate throughout so we all do a third of the shows but it's just, it's great to show up at work and be like, oh, I get to spend my day talking to Alex, or I get to spend mm-hmm. my day with Scott, or, you know, it's great, because obviously we're all busy, we do a lot of things, and we don't yes. get to see each other all the time. So when we shoot, we're actually there about, you know, nine, nine hours, ten hours, and we just sit there and do a show. It's absolutely, mm-hmm. it's, it's so much fun. Pretty fantastic. Um, and it's great, you know, also to see the enthusiasm and the, uh, you know, the, the, the excitement from the contestants. I mean, you know, we're in, I've been in this business quite a while, as you mentioned earlier, and to me, seeing these young kids or chefs or sous chefs from other places, and they come and they cook with these crazy ingredients out of these baskets, but they, you know, we talk about the ingredients, and you can see the excitement. It's like, yes. oh, yes, you know, we, the fresh chickpeas, I was so excited <laughs> to see those in the basket, and so on and so forth, and it's just excitement for the, mm. for the, for the products, excitement for the industry. It, it's great to see. Yeah, and, and that's why we love watching it, and I will tell you, having you on the radio for the first time has been a delight. Your passion shines through in everything you do, and I very much admire that, so I thank you for sharing your passion and for teaching us to season with authority. Um, all of the recipes in the book 
definitely demonstrate that amazing food on the table every night can be simple and straightforward. The go-to favorites that you love have been elevated because Mark Murphy's first cookbook release is now available. It is called Season with Authority, and you can find his extraordinary dishes, of course, um, on restaurant tables in four of his um, wonderful restaurants in New York City. Uh, You can also find him um, giving back as his philanthropy is known throughout the industry, and I commend very much um, your commitment to not only City Harvest, but I know um, Share Our Strengths No Kid Hungry campaign, Mark. I know that's close and dear to your heart, for sure. And we will continue to follow you, yes, of course, at Mark, M-A-R-C dash or hyphen, Mark hyphen Murphy dot com. Will you come back again soon, share a new dish for fall, Chef? Absolutely. Let's do that. I'd love it. I look forward to it. We'll see you on Chopped. It's been a pleasure. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you so much, Mark. As the delicious conversation continues, you learned it here first. Big names and so much more right after the break. Food is life. Create and savor yours. There is always something to learn when it comes to the wide world of food. Chef Jamie Gwen, welcome back in your radio. In Combat Ready Kitchen, the new release, food writer Anastasia Marks de Salcedo offers an extraordinarily eye-opening examination of the U.S. military's influence on the American food industry and the way we eat. And I will tell you, this book might just change the way you think about food forever. It is a fascinating read for gastronomes, and I am delighted to share the author's perspective with you. She is Anastasia Marks de Salcedo, a writer whose work has appeared in every top magazine, including Salon, Slate, and the Boston Globe, even Gourmet, and on PBS and NPR blogs. And she has worked as a public health consultant, a news magazine publisher, and a policy researcher. And interestingly enough, she has delved deep into this history of the military shaping the way we eat. And I congratulate you, Anastasia, because it's a wonderful read, and I welcome you to the show. Thank you very much, Jamie. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Most certainly. Okay, uh, talk to us about your research, if you would. Uh, This was a huge undertaking to go back and learn the history and really investigate, I can imagine, um, where we are today in in reference to that. I mean, a a combat-ready kitchen is ever more appropriate today than it has been in the past, amazingly so. It it was actually a huge undertaking, and uh, I did it with using a couple tools. The first was I did, of course, speak with the Natick Center, which is the Army Research Base, which runs the uh, food research program. And I spoke with many of their staff members, and uh, I did a couple of site visits. The primary guide for my research were actually the notes from the Oversight Committee for the Army Research Program, and those have been around since uh, World War II. So mm-hmm. I went down to Washington. I'm in Boston, and I, made, I spent a couple of weeks just photocopying them, and I read through them, and they really provided a roadmap to all of the different areas of interest for the Army and 
projects and indicated specific projects with um, specific universities and uh, and private companies. I think it's so amazing. You you start off the book with a little bit of background on the American food system and specifically Central Command. And when you share the statistics of how the U.S. military buys in bulk and the grocery needs of the entire armed forces, you realize what an influence they have. It is enormous. And in the research area, it's just as great. In terms of uh, science and technology research and development, the Department of Defense actually funds a fifth of all the research in the United States. Hmm. A lot of that research is undertaken or overseen by 80 uh, Department of Defense laboratories, and the Natick Center, which is the subject of the book, is one of these laboratories. At the Natick Center itself, there are, I think, probably eight to 12 other research areas all to do with supporting the individual soldier when he or she is in the field. So not only combat rations, but uh, textiles and body armor and tents and environmental medicine. Sure. Okay, so most of us don't realize, and I didn't, that the U.S. military spearheaded the invention, the invention rather, of many things, extended life bread, instant coffee, um, as you call it, restructured meat, because that's exactly what it is. Um, But um, the huge corporations have had a lot to do with the development and the manufacturing of food for soldiers on the front line, but that's really affected our grocery stores as well, right? Can you expand on that? Sure. Um, The reason is actually has to to do with our policy of military preparedness, which comes from World War II. And during World War II, the U.S. had to ramp up to fight an enormous war and to supply up to uh, 11.6 million soldiers. So after the war, the government decided that it didn't ever want to have to go through this horrible wrenching ramp-up process again Mm. and decided to maintain the government and the commercial sector in a state of readiness. And so it has since then, at that point, the federal laboratories were established, of which the Natick Center is one. And it, and it became a goal to get the technology that was developed in these labs or funded by these labs into commercial products so that in the event of a war, uh, either the pr- production line for a manufacturer could be quickly turned for military needs or their products would already be close enough to the military item, in, in the case of food or ration that they could be substituted. I think it really is fascinating. I loved reading about canning in Combat Ready Kitchen only because I felt like I could relate to it. I can foods, right? I mean, you know, there, there is this wonderful process of putting it up, but the discovery of canning so long ago um, has earned its place, but it has changed the face of food, has it not? It has. And one of the interesting things about canning is it seems as if it's sort of this <clears throat> antique preservation <laughs> technique, yes. but in fact, it's relatively modern. And in the book, I point out that if you look into the rucksack of a Roman legionnaire, that his fare would be very similar to that of 
the fare of an American or a French Revolutionary War soldier. And that was because no new food preservation techniques had been discovered, and they were still using you know, the folk techniques, drying and salting and curing. So what you would have found in those rucksacks was uh, a hunk of bacon, a bit of flour, some beans, and hardtack. Hardtack is a, a twice-baked twice biscuit. Yes. So uh, what happened was in, around the time of the, of the French Revolution and afterwards, the French government decided that it needed to expand the offering for soldiers, and it began to look for another food preservation technique. And in 1895, it offered a prize to anyone who could come up with a, to the fifth major <laughs> food preservation <laughs> technique. Right. And a fellow named Nicolas Appert, who was, interestingly enough, I, in the book I call him a celebrity chef, and he really yes. was. He started out <laughs> his career cooking for nobility and such I like. I loved and, that, yes. Yeah. And then he, he turned his attention to candy. I think he got jaded. And um, he spent over 10 years perfecting this technique, which he didn't understand scientifically, but involved simply placing food in a container inside a, 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 a larger container with boiling water, and that hmm. was and then sealing it, and that was the discovery of canning. Right, and so the pasteurization method was credited to him, right? Well, I will say the, the uh, Institute of Food Technologies has an annual prize called the Appair uh, Award. Oh, so they do acknowledge him. We're learning all about a combat-ready kitchen. Anastasia Marks de Salcedo shares more of her new book release right after this. We're back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio, dishing on how the military shapes the way you eat. Author Anastasia Marks de Salcedo is here. Fast forward 100 years, and we have this new concept. By by that I mean it's not canned, but rather in a bar form. And it's in a package, and we call it an energy bar. And you call it what America runs on. <laughs> yeah. The energy bar is really very interesting because... I didn't. I didn't really expect this to happen in doing the research, but it it is been underdeveloped in one shape or form for almost a hundred years. Hmm. And the first form was actually as a chocolate emergency ration. Yes. Uh, and which first started out being just regular chocolate, but quickly the army realized that if it was regular chocolate, that the soldiers weren't going to save it for an emergency. So they devised on adding some things that are a little less tasty, such as oat flour hmm. and um, egg protein and some other things. That first gut fielded, that means went to war in people's rucksacks, uh, in World War II and was produced 
by Hershey. Yes. Okay. And we're going to leave it there. Everything from packaged deli meat to a supermarket tour. It is time to unpack your child's lunchbox and unravel the secret military past of just about everything in it. I very much respect and admire your research, Anastasia, and I commend you on a a really well-written book. Uh, I thought it was absolutely fascinating, and I thank you for um, bringing a new perspective and for sharing your passion. Thank you very much, Tiffany. Yes, a pleasure. The book, once again, called Combat Ready Kitchen and the author, Anastasia Marks de Salcedo. There is more interesting and inspiring culinary conversation. Well, at least we hope you think so. Right after the break, don't go away. It's the summertime and we are sizzling, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. So how can you enjoy that summer vacation without packing on the pounds? Well, if travel's deadliest sin for you is gluttony, well then you and I are in the same boat and we both need to listen here. Martha Stewart was quoted as saying that she was the only personal trainer that ever made a difference and that's a pretty big statement. Nutrition and fitness expert Lisa Lynn is no nonsense about weight loss. And of course, she highlights all the tips and tricks in her book entitled The Metabolism Solution. And I'm always thrilled when she stops by to whip us back into shape. I'm proud to call Lisa Lynn our resident fitness expert on this show. And if you stay tuned for the next almost 10 minutes, she might just change what you think you know about how to lose weight. Welcome back, my trainer friend. How are you? I am awesome. How are you? I'm doing good too. Thank you. Okay. So the summer vacation um, is just upon us and you know, the I'm going away to eat wonderful things in Maui, or I'm going to taste everything I can as we drive across the country and eat barbecue. Um, So your best tips and tricks, please, for those of us that love to eat. And by the way, I put you in that group because the reason I love you as our fitness expert is because you love a Tootsie Roll. You do love to eat. Oh, I love food. I know you do. And and you know what's odd? I've been traveling every week, but I notice how it's always about the food. And when you remove the food, the trip changes. So I say keep the food in the center, but you don't want to come home and pay for it. So there are simple, tiny little things you can do and come home lighter and enjoy what you eat when you're away. Okay. So let's talk about getting on the airplane. I loved the five secrets that you shared recently on LinFit Nutrition. It's linfit.com, L-Y-N-F-I-T. And you say, use your travel time as a cleansing time. That's really smart. I'd rather go in minimally. And who wants to eat, you know, what you pick up or buy in the airport and bring on the plane with you anyway? Exactly. Not only is it yucky food, but it costs a fortune. true. And I actually stumbled on this by accident because I get very air sick Ah, and car sick. So I have to like, 
I for, I'm forced not to eat, which is always good for me. And I found I actually felt better when I got off the plane. Mm. Uh, you know, you know how you get swollen if you eat everything salty. Yes. But I also come back lighter because, one, that kind of cleanses my system, reboots it. And then, two, I do it on the way home. So whatever I did while I was away, you know, airline travel, even for a short flight, could take four to five hours. So it's not that you should not eat at all, but I will only eat one of my lean bars and I'll get a cup of black coffee at the airport. And then you drink loads of water. I know. Loads of water. And I will tell you, I've always done that to stay hydrated because my skin looks better and I feel better the next two or three days of meetings on the trip itself. But I find as well that I feel better getting off the airplane because I've almost flushed my system. And yes, you do have to get up and go potty very often, but that's great for your body for circulation because no matter how healthy you are, you can get those little blood clots in your legs. So getting up is awesome. And, um, you know, try to sit on an aisle seat, of course. Yeah, most important. Um, Okay, let's talk about being hungry. I don't particularly like being hungry, Lisa. And you and I have known each other for quite a while now. And so you know that. But I thought it was a really smart tip. We know on vacation, we're going to eat big meals, right? So you have to learn not to munch in between. People are really afraid of this now. And I have to say, I do talk about this deep in my book. The people who invented this eat six times a day are the people who sell you the snacks that you they want you to eat. <laughs> it is just fine to be hungry unless you're in the single digits of body fat. If you're not in a single digit, and you know if you are, you've got nothing to pinch, your body has reserves to use as fuel should you have to go for a long period of time and not eat. So embrace hunger and know that it's a sign of anti-aging. It's a sign your body's about to burn fat, and it's okay to be hungry most of the time. We need to drink water or any fluid, for that matter, versus eat. And nine out of ten times, we're just bored. I watched people eat for five hours the other day in a delay. None of them needed to, and I believe me, I was tempted, simply because we were sitting there. Okay, we're coming home relaxed, happier, and weighing less from our next vacation than when we left. Thanks to Lisa Lynn. You can learn more tips, stay healthy and lean and still eating the things you love. Oh, and by the way, looking fabulous. If you go to lynnfit.com, L-Y-N-F-I-T.com. We'll see you again in the fall, Lisa. And uh, Cannot we'll, wait. we'll start planning for, um, for sweater weather. And how to look lean in a sweater. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Always a challenge. Yeah. Smaller. Smaller. Thank you so much, Lisa. Always. Thanks. So that brings us to the end of another hour of culinary commentary. If you have a taste for life, well, then this is your show. And I hope you'll tune in every Sunday from shopping to presentation to cultivating the best, most delectable dishes I'm hoping to help you bring it all together. So listen in for great ideas, products and trends, food and wine knowledge galore, and know that there is no reservation needed on this show. I'm always serving up seconds at chefjamie.com, and I hope that you'll become a friend on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. And I'll leave you with my last bite, my last ounce or tidbit of culinary conversation for the hour. This past week, we celebrated National Tequila Day, 
And if you miss the party, well then, making this chicken recipe will be the perfect belated celebration. Now you could say that I'm on a margarita kick. And by the way, I don't see a problem with that at all. But to follow up on my frozen margarita pie, as discussed last week, I wanted to share my grilled margarita chicken recipe. It is the juiciest, most delicious chicken you will pull off the grill during these summer months. And I know that you will love it. It is so good. And it combines the juice and zest of limes, lemons, and oranges, along with some jalapeno pepper, a little bit of minced garlic, some ground cumin, good olive oil, and of course, a good shot of tequila. The tequila permeates the chicken and makes it oh so tender. And the citrus flavor just, it comes alive. I will post the specific measurements and all of the ingredients for my grilled margarita chicken on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. And I will hope that you will meet me here next Sunday when the delicious conversation continues. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off. I thank you for listening, and I hope you continue to eat well. Well.